Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. All right, at this time, I want to encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, of course, you can pull up this passage um, on your phone or computer. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting in verse 25. So we are finishing our study on the fruit of the Spirit. And I have to say, I will miss this series. This has been such an encouragement and a challenge in my own life. Uh, It's challenged me to view hard circumstances as an opportunity, actually as a fertile soil for growth. Um, We've been asking God to give our church not a bunker mentality, but a greenhouse mentality. A bunker and a greenhouse are both cramped. They're both uncomfortable, but only one lets light in and only one sees growth. And so that's what we've been asking God for. And this has been a challenge as I've been going through each of these ways that God says he's growing us. I've been challenged in unique ways, but it's also encouraged me because this growth that we're promised comes from God. It's not a self-will project. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a project of worship. In fact, the image that Paul uses in uh, Galatians is fruit. It's fruit, which, if you think about it, is a very encouraging image. Fruit, the growth of fruit may not be instant, but it is inevitable. It may not be instant, but the growth of fruit is incremental. And so it's been an encouragement to me that even if I see slow growth in these areas, I can trust God is indeed at work in those areas. Uh, And specifically the areas of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And today we're going to be looking at that very last piece, self-control. The Greek word that Paul uses is enkratea. And what does that word mean? What does Paul mean by the word? What do the other writers of scripture mean by that word? And more importantly, how can we have more of it? More self-control in our lives. And so we're going to be looking at three passages to help us answer that this morning. Uh, But more importantly, uh, we're going to start here at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Verse verse 25. So I'll read. Actually, let's start at verse 24. I'll read. You can follow along. We'll pray and we'll see what God has for us this morning. This is God's word. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Lord, would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And Holy Spirit, empower this sermon, empower my words, um, come in power Transform our hearts, Lord. This is not an exercise in information, but Lord, 
if you will, it could be our transformation. Your word is powerful. So speak in power this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can probably tell, um, I am not home. But I am at our home away from home. Over the summers, you've probably heard me talking about heading north to northern Michigan as a family. And we like to spend a week or so in northern Michigan. It's always great once we get here. But the getting here is not always great. In fact, the getting here is one of our biggest struggles in the summer. Uh, The car ride itself is an eight-hour car ride. And uh, this year, this summer, was particularly unique because we were trying to make this eight-hour car drive without any stops. In a coronavirus pandemic, that's the challenge when you're doing a car ride, and that was our challenge. And we, we, we approached it face-on, but it was hard. And so during the final stretch of this uh, long ride, when my patience was running thin, I decided to play a song game, a song game. I would play four of my favorite musicians and a song from them, and then I would ask my three boys to pick their three favorite songs out of those four. When they picked their three favorite, then I would play another song from the same three musicians, and I would ask them to pick the one song that they liked the most. And this kept our attention for a little bit of time, and I really enjoyed it. But honestly, the reason I did that wasn't so much uh, to make time pass, but it was also because... It's my subversive attempt to get my kids to enjoy the music that I think that they should enjoy. Um, I'm just trying to move the needle a little bit away from Baby Shark and the Frozen soundtrack. That's just my own parenting at this time in my life. Uh, But of course, my kids are 10 years and under. And so I was careful to pay attention to all the lyrics of the songs that I was playing them, of my favorite songs. And I noticed something about the lyrics of these songs. Regardless of the genre, every song that we listened to was about personal expression. I love you, I feel this way, and I have to say it. I want you, I, I need you, and I have to say it. It was all about personal expression. In fact, students of music, they point out that how popular music used to be about shared events. But now, popular music is all about personal expression of passions and desires. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, he has a helpful phrase that explains this phenomenon. He says that we're all living in what he calls the age of authenticity. This age of authenticity requires us to do two things. To discover our deepest, truest self. And number two to express our truest, deepest self, especially, and this is important, especially over and against outside authorities. This is the age of authenticity, according to Charles Taylor. I mean, he's written tomes, volumes and volumes and volumes of books that basically are his attempt to answer the question, why are we saying today to each other, follow your heart and you do you? That's basically his project. He wouldn't put it that way, but I will. I've shared before that the most famous expression of the age of authenticity is actually from the Frozen soundtrack. And that's not why I'm trying to get my kids away from the soundtrack, by the way. I I love Frozen. But it's the song Let It Go. Let It Go has been described as the anthem for the age of authenticity. 
it's basically we don't control uh, – the age of the age of authenticity is that we must express or let go what is most true about us and our desires, and we must discover them and we must let them go. And what that means is that in this age of authenticity, it's the worst possible thing to control our desires. Self control actually is a great sin in the age of authenticity, but. This can be a problem, can it? I think everybody recognizes this. Because what happens when we let loose desires that damage others? Or ourselves? We've all been hurt by another person's uncontrolled and unleashed desires. And we've all experienced the deep regret that comes on the other side of an uncontrolled and unleashed desire. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself, he talks a lot about this, how destructive, unleashed desires can be in our lives. Just above his list, actually, of the fruit of the Spirit that we've been walking through over the past few months, Paul gives another list, and he calls it the works of the flesh. Just listen along. This is verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Hang on to that phrase, the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. There's that list. Paul doesn't tell the church, in other words, to follow their hearts, does he? In fact, Paul actually is saying, be very careful about the desires of your hearts. Be very careful. The actions and the attitudes that you just heard me read aloud in verse 19 are, for Paul, a contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. And the growth that God is going to be doing amongst his people who are new creations in Christ. And the fruit of the Spirit, especially self-control, stands as a contrast against this list. And so just going back to this list, starting in verse 19, if you're following along, he starts with sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. So instead of sexual immorality, and the word there is porneia, and so just like it sounds refers to any sexual activity that falls outside of God's loving boundaries for sexual activity. Monogamous male-female marriage. Impurity and sensuality, he includes in there, which the NIV translates as debauchery. We have all seen what can happen when, uh, when, when desires are unleashed and how they can damage others in these areas. And we ask the Spirit for self-control. Not because we're killjoys, but because we trust God's wisdom for sex. And then we go on. Instead of placing our trust and hope in whatever we think is best uh, in terms of worship, we ask the Spirit for self-control so we can recognize idols in our lives. And we can worship God because we trust God's wisdom on worship. 
And moving along, instead of unleashing hatred, discord, jealousy, Paul goes on, fits of rage, nursing selfish ambition, creating dissensions, factions, living in envy, just because it feels right, just because it's sort of how, how it feels to, to go in any kind of relationship that we're having trouble with. We ask the Spirit for self-control so that we can order our relationships according to the wisdom of God. And we trust God's wisdom on relationships, especially when they're difficult. And instead of eating and drinking however we want, in fact, what the ESV here translates as orgies, we're primarily drinking parties, okay? So instead of just eating and drinking however we want, we ask God for self-control. We ask the Spirit for self-control. Why? Because we trust God's wisdom, again, in this area. So in other words, we don't just follow our hearts as Christians, We follow God's heart. That is true authenticity. And to do this, we need what the New Testament calls self-control. To follow God's heart, we need self-control. And how do we get self-control in our let-it-go age? Well, if we explore what the New Testament says about this word, I think we'll find at least three pathways to self-control. The first way is by remembering, what I'll call looking back. Looking back. We remember. Um, And in particular, we remember the cross. We remember Good Friday. We remember the hill of Calvary. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And Paul says, just to set it up, that we, are, we must supplement our faith, okay? Paul says we must supplement our faith, not in our own strength to earn our salvation. That's wrong. But according to verse 3, by his divine power, in light of his divine promises, and because of our divine participation. Those three big things, therefore, sort of move us into what Paul calls a supplementing of the faith. This is what he says in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Did you hear it? Self-control. And with, and with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So self-control, according to Peter here, is a faith supplement. But what if we lack self-control, right? What if we lack it? What if we are honest about our lives and we notice that we're lacking here? Well, Peter addresses this in verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. Blind on what? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see it? Do you see it? The reasons that we lack self-control, according to Peter, is not because we lack willpower, but instead it's because we have forgotten that we have been cleansed of our former sins. That's Peter's logic here. The way Peter puts it is that a person without self-control, or any of the other things he added there, is because of nearsightedness or short-sightedness. 
I recently went to the eye doctor uh, because I thought I couldn't see things up close. I mean, I can't see things up close. It's just becoming evident. And I have been using reading glasses that I bought off of Amazon for like $3. And I thought it'd be better instead of self-diagnosing myself to actually go to a legit doctor. And I just thought I couldn't see in front of me. But after I got my eyes tested, it turns out I also have long-distance vision problems. And that's exactly what Peter is talking about here. He's saying that that we have short-sightedness as believers. We have short-sightedness. We can only see what's in front of us. We can't see down down the distance. We don't have the long view. And this is true of anybody who does not have self-control. They can only see what is in front of them, and they don't see the long view. And according to Peter, more importantly, they don't see the cross of Jesus. It's gone blurry. But the Spirit gives us clear vision, like a telescope of the cross. And this means a few things. The way to grow in self-control is primarily by remembering, by treasuring our forgiveness. Uh, We need to focus on the cross. In fact, we won't obey God at all in any sustainable, life-changing way unless our heart is melted by the forgiveness of our sins. Not just when we first believe, but especially in the days after, in the years after, in the decades after, every day of our life. Self-control is hard. Self-control, humanly speaking, is impossible. But the cross of Jesus and the cleansing of the sins that we have is an enablement toward that self-control. I mean, self-control, if we're just speaking honestly, is hard and it feels like death. And so why would we pursue that unless I am first melted by the forgiveness of God through Jesus? It means that we don't exercise self-control in order to be loved, but because we're loved. Peter says we supplement our faith with self-control, not to be cleansed from our sins, That's how many of us approach self-control, isn't it? If I could just control this area, this problem area in my life, then my sins will be cleaned by Jesus. Then I'll be a clean person. But no, Peter's logic is totally backwards. He says, because your sins are cleaned once and for all and forever, therefore you are free to pursue self-control in those areas. If you think about the works of the flesh that Paul described in Galatians that I read out loud to you, cuts through every single human heart. It describes religious and non-religious sins. And if your conscience wasn't agitated when when Paul read through the works of the flesh, then, then, then you're not alive to your heart. But if your trust is in Jesus then each and every sin described by Paul cannot condemn you because your sins were condemned on the cross. You've been cleansed. Allow that reality and truth to compel self-control. And so the first pathway of self-control is looking back. I would say the second pathway is by looking forward. Looking forward. Let's read 1 Corinthians verse 9. I'm sorry, chapter 9. Verses 25 through 27 again. Remember, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians. We'll start in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. 
So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul compares the Christian life to an intense athletic training. I mean, he was writing Corinthians, and they had the second largest Olympic Games in the ancient times. And it happened not every four years, but every two years. And so often athletes would live in Corinth, train in Corinth. And so when he brought up this training metaphor, he knew exactly who he was talking about. This church knew elite athletes personally. They knew them because they went to the games and they probably were sitting among the church as well. And so he says that elite athletes do one thing. They train. They don't exercise. They train. What's the difference between exercise and training? Well, exercise is aimless. Can I get an amen? I mean, exercise is aimless. It doesn't look forward to anything. It just is. It's like a runner running aimlessly, according to Paul, or a boxer just beating the air. There's no purpose. There's no aim. There's no goal in any exercise. And then training, as a contrast, has a future vision. And Paul here is training. He's saying, look at your Christian life as if you're training for a big event. And that's why he keeps his body under control. Why? Because he knows where he's heading. He knows what his mission is. He has a training mindset, not an exercise mindset. God has given him and every Christian a mission, a real mission. And that's why he exercises self-control. It informs everything he does. That's what he says. Under everything. Every athlete exercises self-control in some things, no, in all things, all things. There's an athletic coach, his name's Dan John, and he says the best way to actually get in shape is to enter an athletic contest. Think about that. That's genius. That's absolute genius because no matter what your level of fitness is, if you, if you enter into an athletic contest, you will train. You will train for the goal. See, exercise doesn't have that vision. A vision has been defined as a, as a compelling picture of the future that provokes action today. I love that definition. Training doesn't have a vision. Training, I mean, sorry, training does have that vision. Exercise doesn't. Training has a compelling picture of the future that provokes present-day action. And that's the difference between jogging and training for a 5K. A jogger just runs, and so they sometimes wake up and they're like, nah, not going to do it. But the trainer has a compelling picture of the future, whether it's crossing the finish line, seeing their friends, wearing the shirt, having the medal hanging on their wall, seeing their friends at the finish, whatever it is. And that provokes a kind of self-discipline that would be absent from just exercise. And so one pathway to self-control in the Christian life, I think, is to approach the Christian life as training for a big event. Think about that. I mean, how can we do that? Imagine the future. This is what Scripture does over and over and over again. Scripture, especially the New Testament, is leading God's people to think about the future and then adjust the present in accordance with the future. Scripture is full of, of what N.T. Wright calls signposts to those, to those days when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Resurrected bodies, a resurrection uh, uh, a resurrected a new heavens and a new earth. And that future day compels and informs the way that we live today. And it compels and it informs self-control. 
to exercise self-control, you need to imagine what the future will be like. Just imagine it right now. Jesus coming back, making all things new, and now arrange your today accordingly. Imagine the finish line. This means that we should be able to draw a line from how we eat, how we drink, how we use the internet, how we how we do relationships, both romantic and friends, how we do our social media. We ought to be able to draw a line between from those things to that final day. Can we? Well, if we can't, then Paul is inviting us to exercise self-control in those areas. So there is a continuity. We're training for a big day. That's Paul's big argument. It's an invitation. I love how David Brooks puts it. He says, this is the difference between cultivating eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. A lot of us in our youth and even our middle age and even beyond middle age, we pursue resume virtues. What's impressive? How can I impress others? How can I climb the ladder? But then when the eulogy comes around, it's pretty bare and empty. But what if we started cultivating eulogy virtues today? That's kind of what Paul's talking about here. As we look to that future day, we train in accordance to that future day. So we look forward. We look backward. We look forward. And just finally, as we close, the third pathway to self-control is looking up. Looking up. Let's listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. I encourage you to turn there, too, if you're able Chapter 12, verse 13. We'll start in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. And we were all made, and here's what I want us to focus in on, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So one way to grow in self-control is, is actually to acknowledge that self-control comes from God. And in particular, God the Spirit. We must drink the Spirit, Paul says. We look up. We look up from where the Spirit is poured out on believers. The New Testament often compares alcoholic drunkenness to spiritual drunkenness. Paul in Ephesians 5.18 says, Don't get drunk on wine, for that's debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. And then he, he explains what being filled with the Spirit is. It's, it's addressing one another with psalms and with hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we don't have to control our, or limit our thirst for the Spirit in our life. We can pray for his empowering presence in our life. More of it. I mean, do you feel like you don't have the ability to control your temper or your temptations? Let me just say, of course you do. Of course you feel that way. Self-control is a spiritual fruit. It's a spiritual fruit. God gives us self-control. So we cry out to God to give us self-control. I've noticed lately that stoicism is making a comeback. Have you noticed that? There are over 100,000 members I read 
um, of Stoic online communities. There's a Stoic con. You can subscribe to emails called the Daily Stoic. And I think one of the appeals to Stoicism today is the promise of self-control, isn't it? The Daily Stoic says, and I'm quoting, Stoicism has just a few central teachings. It sets out to remind us of how unpredictable the world can be, how brief our moment of life is, and listen, how to be steadfast and strong and in control of yourself. And so it's appealing. But here's the thing. Paul is not asking you or me to be a Stoic. Paul is not a Stoic. Paul says we are spirit-filled, spirit-empowered Christ followers. Self-control is a fruit of God, the Holy Spirit, not a fruit of ingenious human philosophy, as helpful as that can be. Every so often I test myself to see if I can go without something, if I can go without coffee, for instance. I did that for the first couple months of 2020. And then the coronavirus hit, and my wife was drinking coffee every morning, and and I'm sitting on the porch with her, and she's drinking this coffee without me, and so there went my self-control. I caved. But listen, that's what I call old self-control. It's sheer willpower. It's habit formation. I just decided, I'm going to try this. And these are great things, right? These are great things when used for good. Self-control, sheer willpower, habit formation, all great things when used for good. But what is being described here from Paul is not old self-control, but what I'll call new self-control. The new self is united to the risen Jesus. The new self has the spirit of the living God. So any ability to say no or to say no more comes from God the Spirit. And so what we do is we look up every moment of our day and we say, just like the first step in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have power. But Jesus, you do. We acknowledge our need and we acknowledge the only person who can meet us in our need. So how do we grow in self-control? We look back, we look forward, and we look up. And do you notice each time we look, we're looking at Jesus. Our desire for Jesus needs to outpace our sinful desires. Even if it's a millimeter of outpacing, that's what we need. And so we pray for it and we ask for it. And this is a prayer God wants to answer. Look back to the cross. Look forward to the return of Jesus and look up as the spirit is poured out on his people. What area of your life needs self-control? You can attack it with fear of man. You can attack it with fear of punishment. You can attack it with fear of failure. And those may be effective for a day or a month or a decade, maybe even your whole life. But it doesn't have Jesus. Paul is inviting you to worship here. Worship Jesus. Self-control and worship and all of Jesus go hand in hand. They go together. Give your struggles to Jesus. This acknowledges your struggles and it acknowledges Jesus as a solution. Self-control is not self-powered. It's spirit-empowered. Let's just pray for that now. Lord, we ask that you would empower us at this time. Empower us and grow in us self-control.
We don't do it because of fear. We do it because of love. Love for you and the love you've shown us in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.